some of you enjoyed that song. <laughs> right, Pastor Glenn said to me, you know this one, don't you? I said, no, never heard it before in my life, but I think most of you have heard it before. <laughs> it's just me. Well, it is my privilege this morning to try and tie up and uh, bring together this series uh, that we've been looking at probably the last eight weeks or so, eight or nine weeks, which has been mostly based in this, the letters to the seven churches in the first part of the book of Revelation. But we've mostly been exploring these letters from the perspective of Jesus as the bridegroom, uh, waiting or writing to his, his expectant bride. And today we come to the, the climax of this series. So if you're a visitor here, or you've come to the, the end of what has been a, a series, and you might have to go back and read the seven letters to fully understand what we've been talking about. Um, but it is also the climax, really, of the whole Bible, the, the wedding of the Lamb. And we all love weddings, don't we? Um, there's something very special about um, sharing in the union of one person to another as they embark on a new future together. It is a very joyous time. It is a celebratory time. It's a family and friends time. And it is also a time of great intimacy. All of you. I am sure have many memories, great memories, of weddings that you've either attended or had the privilege to have seen. Uh, and one of my favourite wedding memories I want to share with you this morning took place at a wedding that I actually wasn't invited to. <laughs> In fact, there weren't many people at all invited to this particular wedding. The wedding took place in this church during the middle of lockdown. And so for that reason, there were very, very few people invited. But the couple had put off their wedding plans for many, many months, over, um, well, over about 12 months. And eventually they decided enough's enough, we're just going to get married. And while Pastor Glenn conducted the ceremony inside, many of you will remember we gathered up in the car park. We decorated our cars and we watched the ceremony on iPod, pod, iPads and phones in our cars, waiting for the signal from Pastor Glenn uh, for us to drive by. And we drove by, some of us with music blaring, some of us tooting and waving and shouting our greetings as we circled this building, throwing rose petals and small gifts out the window at the, at the couple. Well, my car led the procession. That's us gathering there at the Tedajani car park up the road. And so it was my privilege to see the reaction of the couple as we arrived. And we drove down from the car park and we turned into uh, Marcus Road and we came slowly past them before we circled in this driveway and, and around again to greet them out on the deck. And Sarah and Josh were so excited and shocked to see us when we drove past. And they waved excitedly to my kids who were in the back seat yelling things out the window. But for me, the best moment came when someone pointed out to Sarah that there wasn't just one car, that it wasn't just Caroline and her family who'd come out to say hello. And she looked up 
to Thompson's Road and she saw this line of cars going up towards the hill and she just put her hands up over her face and she went, oh, like this. She was completely overcome for that moment. It was a wow wedding moment that I'm sure many of you and, and also the couple will not forget. And weddings are full of wedding wow moments. Um, most grooms have that sort of moment when they turn and they see their bride coming towards them, you know, fully made up and looking beautiful and their breath is just taken away. And I think John had one of those moments, perhaps multiplied maybe a thousand times over, a sort of a wow wedding moment on steroids when he was given a glimpse at the wedding of the Lamb. So if you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me to Revelation 19, verses 6 to 10, as we read together what would have to be the greatest wow wedding moment of all time. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like a loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell to his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Well, there is always that collective gasp in any wedding ceremony when the bride makes her appearance. Usually she's late, and so there's a bit of anticipation builds up. And I think for most of those present, that wow factor is perhaps not quite so great when the bride is a woman who is very glamorous and always dressed well and always made up and her hair done. But when you're used to seeing someone only in their jeans or work clothes and when you've never seen them made up at all and then suddenly they appear, made up, hair all done, beautiful white dress, well, that is quite a transformation. And John knew the church well. He'd seen the church through its early years. He'd seen its faults and failings. He'd seen its successes. And he'd borne with it all. He'd recorded these words of Jesus while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. He'd heard words of commendation from him, but he'd also heard the stinging words of rebuke to these seven churches. And we've spent seven weeks going through in detail each of these letters. 
John knew the good and he knew the bad and he knew the ugly of each of these churches. He understood the true state of the church at that time. And then in the end of the book of Revelation, he is given a glimpse of what is to come. And it is a wow moment to end all wow moments for him, I believe. He sees the bride of Christ who has made herself ready. And I believe that what he sees is a transformation that is so complete that he is just completely overcome. So much so that what he does next is completely out of character and completely inappropriate. Here is John, by now well into his old age. He's an experienced apostle and he's falling on his knees to worship an angel. It's quite a serious theological error, particularly for someone who is so convinced that there is only one God and whose whole gospel proclaims the divinity of Christ. And the angel rebukes him for it, saying, don't do that, I am a fellow servant. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy that bears testimony to Jesus. So what is it that could make this most devoted of apostles commit such a fundamental error? And I think this passage gives us a little glimpse and insight here. The bride, it says, was given fine linen, bright and clean to wear. And John puts a little explainer there. We've got it, most of us in our Bibles in brackets, that the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now, those acts, where do they come from? They have to come from God because it is not possible for an unrighteous person to commit righteous acts on their own. An unrighteous person can do good work, they can do some good things, but they're not going to be righteous acts. Righteous acts are those acts that are carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit during our time on earth as believers. And it is that power of the Holy Spirit that is important here. Because a believer, just like an unbeliever, can do many good things. They can give to the poor. They can um, have people in their homes for meals. They can do all sorts of great things in the community. But if they're carried out in their own power, they will never be righteous acts. When our good works are done in the power of the Holy Spirit, they're counted as righteous acts and they are part of the bride's beautiful wedding garment. Well, you might say, but isn't the righteousness of Christ sufficient? And yes, it is. All believers are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And at that moment of our conversion, we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. But in that process of dying to oneself and living for Christ, we open ourselves up to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We allow him to reign in our lives. And the outworking of that will be that daily we are being transformed more and more 
into the image of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit will work through us. Our works will be done in the power of the Holy Spirit and therefore they will be acts of righteousness. So this glimpse at the wedding garment representing acts of righteousness was perhaps something that would make John momentarily gasp and fall to his knees in worship. But I think there's more. So if you jump ahead with me a couple of chapters now, we're going to Revelation 21, verses 9 to 11. Here we get a little bit of a repeat of this incident and we're given a little bit more detail to help us understand what's going on. This section in many Bibles is titled The Wedding, uh, the, the New Jerusalem, The Bride of the Lamb, or, or something to that effect. So we're going to read from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3, and then jumping down to 9 to 11. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, says John, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. <laughs> well, those, I think, would have to be some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. When John was permitted to take a look at the bride, what he saw was, was not a woman. What he saw we're told, was a holy city, the New Jerusalem. And she was brilliant. Like a very precious jewel, like a jasper. Now, for any of you who know your gemstones, that probably sounds a little bit strange because what we know as jasper today is not particularly precious. You can buy it anywhere for not very much nor is it clear as crystal. This is what we know of as jasper. It comes in a variety of colours. The red is the most common, but it's opaque, not clear as crystal. So exactly what sort of precious stone is being referred to here, we don't know. But what we do know is that it was brilliant, very precious, and crystal clear. Some have likened it to maybe diamonds or perhaps opals. Now, all sorts of commentators have read all sorts of things into the symbolic meaning of this particular stone. The words purity and perfection are often bandied around, uh, and I guess that's all plausible and possible, 
But sometimes if we get too concerned about the detail and the symbolism in everything, we, we kind of lose sight of the big picture. We lose sight of what's obvious. And I think in this case, what is obvious speaks volumes. We're going to jump again. This time if you jump back to chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4. The very beginning of the chapter... John has just finished taking down all these words of Jesus to the seven churches. So these letters that we've all been through, he's just finished with them. And chapter 4 tells us that after this, so after taking down these letters, these words, I looked and there before me was a door standing open to heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Can you imagine that? I heard a voice saying, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. It's kind of mind-blowing. At once, says John, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper. Why does it matter that the holy city, the bride, had the brilliance of Jasper? Well, I think it matters because she shone with the very same glory that John had first seen when he glimpsed the Lord Almighty himself on his throne in heaven. Her transformation was complete and that great prayer of Jesus that's recorded for us in John chapter 17 was answered because there she was, the new Jerusalem, sharing that glory that belongs to Jesus, completely unified and right there in his presence. And so that redemptive story that Pastor Glenn spoke to us about last week that began in Eden that story has come to its conclusion because those who fell short of the glory of God in Eden, they have been redeemed and restored. Indeed, they are shining with the glory of God. And that, I believe, is what made worship just well up and bubble out of John, even if the object of his worship was at the time misguided. And ultimately, that radiant transformation is the destiny of every believer in Christ. That's what we all have to look forward to. All of us will be part of this amazing, wow, wedding moment. But we're not quite there yet. So whilst it's wonderfully encouraging to skip to the end of the Bible and see how the story ends, we see what we've all got to look forward to. We do so recognising that we're not quite at the wedding yet. Now, during the lifetime of Jesus, many of you will be aware that Hebrew weddings consisted of three parts, the betrothal, the wedding, and the wedding feast. And Jesus often in his teachings, would use the Hebrew wedding customs as an analogy for his ministry on earth, his departure and his return. 
And these are not difficult teachings for us to understand. That's why he often uses analogies in his teaching. Because we see these three elements reflected in our own weddings. We have the engagement, the wedding itself, and the reception. Now, our customs are not quite the same as the traditional Hebrew wedding customs, but there's enough in there that we can get the general idea. But if we seek to understand a little bit the Jewish culture of the time, we will get many more of the details filled in. Unlike engagements today, the betrothal was a legally binding arrangement. It wasn't entered into lightly and could only be ended with divorce. The prospective groom and his family would meet the prospective bride and the members of her family. And a bridal contract or covenant called the Ketubah, detailing all that the groom promised to his future bride would be presented to her and to her family. And since this was often read as part of the marriage ceremony, these things developed into becoming very ornate documents, as you can see up there. A bride price would be agreed by the families of both parties. The groom would then offer his prospective bride a cup, a cup of wine. And if she took the cup and drank from it, it was indication of her willingness to consent to the marriage. The groom would then present his bride with a parting gift before he would leave and head back to his father's house. And so would begin a nine to 12 month waiting period during which time the bride and groom would not see each other. This time would be spent apart and the groom would be expected during this time to prepare a place for the couple to live. Now that doesn't mean he was scrolling through the listings of the local real estate agent looking to purchase a house or even to rent one. It meant that he was doing the physical labour of building and he would be adding on usually an extra room or an extra living quarter to his father's house. Meanwhile, the bride had plenty to do. She had to keep herself pure during this time of waiting. She would wear a veil whenever she went out in public to show that she had been betrothed and had been redeemed for a price. She also had to prepare her wedding garments, which as we was reflected in Revelation, were usually made of fine linen. And she had to be ready at any time of the day or night for her groom to return for her. When everything was deemed to be complete by the groom's father, it was his job to give permission for his son to go and fetch his bride. And this was a fun and celebratory event when the groom and his party, his friends, would enjoy surprising the bride and her party. And they would carry her off like a thief in the night. The bridegroom would usually time his return so that it was somewhere between sunset and sunrise. And he would send his friends ahead of him to blow the shofar or the ram's horn trumpet and they would announce the coming of the bridegroom. The groom would pick up and carry his bride and the whole party, the groom and his friends, the bride and her friends would return in a celebratory procession to the home of the groom's family, their way lit by the oil lamps of the 
the women who were there, the friends of the bride. If he chose to come late into the night or in the early hours of the morning, the small oil reserve in those lamps would be exhausted. So those who were wise and prepared would come with extra oil so that whenever he returned, they could refill those lamps. A wedding canopy would be prepared and the couple would stand under it to receive their wedding blessings before returning to the, the bedroom to consummate their marriage. And that initiated a period of feasting uh, and celebration for the family and friends of the couple. And often this would last for a week or maybe more in the home of the groom's family. How would you like to be hosting that in your house for a week or more? Now, men, it is probably difficult for you to think of yourselves as a bride in waiting. But all of us who are believers will be part of that holy city, the new Jerusalem, that John was able to glimpse coming down out of heaven from God. Our bridegroom is Jesus himself, and he has already visited the home of his bride because he came to earth as God incarnate, and we'll shortly be celebrating that at Christmas, won't we? The coming of God in human form to make his proposal or his covenant with us. He called the wedding contract the new covenant. And it offers those who accept the promise of forgiveness, the restoration of that unity that humanity had back with God in Eden, but that was taken away or destroyed by sin. And it also promises life eternal. And it is fitting that one of the last things that Jesus did before his death was to leave us with two symbols, one of which was a cup of wine, a reminder of that new covenant made possible by his shed blood. But no doubt this symbol would also have brought to mind that act of the bridegroom, having laid out the details of the contract or covenant, offering his future bride a cup and waiting for her to take and drink from it as a sign of her acceptance of his proposal. When he returned to his father's house, Jesus left us a most wonderful gift, for he left us part of himself, his Holy Spirit. And so we wait for his return, but just like the Hebrew bride, we have plenty to do. Our waiting is not to be passive. We must see this as a time of preparation, of getting ready our wedding garments. We must attend to and cultivate our relationship with God to allow the Holy Spirit to have free reign in our lives so that our good works are not done in human power because works that are done in human power are going to be like a dirty stain on those fine wedding garments. We want our works to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit so that they will be counted as acts of righteousness, that fine linen, bright and clean, that the bride will be given to wear. These letters to the seven churches that we have worked our way through in this preaching series are precious because they come straight from the mouth of the bridegroom to her bride, to his bride in her time of waiting. He knows what awaits her 
and he is urging her on towards it. And he's urging us because we are part of that, the church universal. We can only read about what lies in store for us, but John was granted a glimpse of it. And he was blown away by what he saw. So go back this week, if you have opportunity, and return to those seven letters, the seven letters to the seven churches in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Read through them again. Treasure the words that are there as a betrothed bride would treasure letters from her husband who is off somewhere else waiting for that wedding time. And look for yourself in those letters. Have you forsaken your first love as the Ephesian church had? To you, the bridegroom says, remember, repent and return. Reignite that first love that you once had. Perhaps like Smyrna, your decision to accept his proposal has brought you suffering. Might have made you an outcast in your own family. Might have made things very difficult for you at work. Be faithful, says the bridegroom, even to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. Perhaps like Pergamum and Thyatira, it is compromise that you need to deal with. Your faith stands firm, and you may even be very active in his service, but you permit things in your life that you know cause compromise in your relationship with God. Be an overcomer says the bridegroom. Do his will until the end and receive that white stone with a new name written on it and have authority with him over the nations. Maybe like Sardis, you've spoiled your garments. You have a reputation for being spiritually alive, but deep down inside, you know that it's false. Wake up, says the bridegroom. Strengthen that which remains, that you may walk dressed in white as one who is worthy. Perhaps an honest self-assessment finds you lukewarm, like Laodicea, one who has lost their dependence on God. You rarely ask for forgiveness each week because you don't really believe you've sinned. You don't really need Christ's righteousness because you're filled up with self-righteousness and there's no place for the Holy Spirit to work in your life because you have enough power of your own. Perhaps Jesus has been pushed to the periphery, to the outer of your life. And to you, he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come and eat with him and he with me. Open the door and let him in. Or perhaps like Philadelphia, you have endured patiently. You've kept God's word. You've refused to deny the name of Jesus and you have kept yourself pure in this time of waiting for his return. You're ready and you're prepared. To you, the bridegroom says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. <coughs> the bridegroom is coming back. And there is space for all of us in his father's house. We heard that from Pastor Glenn last week, didn't we? 
Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. We are almost home. The question is, if the bridegroom comes tonight to take us there, will we be ready? Have we made the necessary preparations? Have we made ready our souls for that kingdom come? Are we pressing on toward our eternal home with that in mind? Or have we dropped anchor somewhere, happy to settle for where we are? If Jesus the bridegroom were writing to you today, what would he have to commend and what would he need to rebuke? You might like to join me now in prayer as we ask him to show us. Father, what wonder awaits us when that day comes when we will share in the glory of God and come down from heaven, part of that transformed holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. Thank you for sending Jesus to extend the new covenant to us and seal it with his blood. Thank you that a place is being prepared for all who have accepted his offer. Lord, we want to wait well. We want our souls to be prepared for that kingdom come. By your spirit, Lord, help each one of us here today to hear your words to us as individuals. Show us any area in which we are not prepared. Show us where we have not kept our garments clean. Illuminate those areas in our lives where compromise or complacency or lukewarmness have crept in like a great big filthy stain on our wedding garments. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit anew this morning to have his way in us because we want to wait well for Jesus, our bridegroom. Amen.